This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, as per listener request, we sit down to discuss Law of the Accumulation and Breakdown by Heinrich Grossman, specifically we will be reading Section 2, The Law of Capitalist Breakdown. And actually, cool fact, this is one of the first uh, things published for the Frankfurt School, according to Wikipedia. Wow, Ooh. I forgot that Grossman was associated and, with the Frankfurt which School. Which is hilarious because this is nothing like anything else that would be later created by the Frankfurt School because it's very yeah. much, it's just like pure political economy. The Frankfurt School goes in waves. There's a first wave, second wave, third wave. It's like yeah. useful to like break it down like that because whatever Sorry. else you could say about the Frankfurt School, they there was a lot of intellectual freedom there that you couldn't have at a Stalinist institution. It's just, I don't know, it's just interesting to me how different this is from, honestly, what's popular in Marxism today as well. Everyone kind of wants to emphasize subjectivism over, like, raw determinism, and determinism is kind of seen as a bad thing. But this book, I, this, um, you know, this book basically pushes hard for economic determinism. Right. Well, the problem is, you know, in the academy, Marxism survived in the humanities and in a section of, like, literature. <laughs> but not of actual economics. So that's a big part of how it gets filtered into, you know, the, the discourse today. Uh, but yeah, this is obviously the kind of, you know, hardcore, like Marxist political economic thinking that we're all fans of. So Yeah. And what's also interesting about the fact that it was published for the Frankfurt School was that it was also a piece of economic policy writing for, you know, the Stalinist Comintern during the third period, because... You had the theory that um, you had the first period um, after the Bolshevik Revolution until around 1921, where there was um, wars and revolutions. And then there was a stability of capitalism, which was the second period. And now the capitalism had entered its third period, which was a period of breakdown. And so basically the proletariat had to go on a revolutionary offensive. And so they took up um, a lot of positions that are now, I guess, essentially the left comps like they formed their own separate unions from the mainstream unions. They uh, basically said that fascism, that social democracy and fascism were both equally bad. And, you, you know, it, it's an infamous social fascism theory. And they basically kind of took an ultra left route because the common turn had decided that capitalism had entered this period of crisis and decay and breakdown. And so this is kind of an attempt to prove that capitalism is inevitably going to break down because not only is there a law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, there's a law of breakdown that he tries to... Um, yeah, I, I think the distinction between that is interesting. And he gets into that in his section on John Stuart Mill and David Ricardo. Apparently, David Ricardo basically came up with the falling rate of profit tendency but didn't really understand where it was going to go. <clears throat> and that um, he, he apparently, first of all, routed it, uh, excuse me, first of all, rooted it in diminishing returns in agriculture. He thought of it as a sort of natural phenomenon. Of course, that's different in Marx. Um, John Stuart Mill, however, <laughs> did recognize what the falling rate of profit would mean. And as far as I can tell, um, that's like, for Grossman where the theory of breakdown really takes shape. And I feel like breakdown in Grossman's usage is a slightly broader category than the tendential fall in the rate of profit, but is almost used uh, like synonymously in about Marx. Because the only time where I would say that that's not true is when he's talking about John Stuart Mill's theory of breakdown and his four countervailing tendencies to, about that breakdown. Um, which again, Marx translates into value terms. Yeah, so I guess, I don't know, maybe just, 
you know, to kind of do a basic 101. What exactly is, you know, the law of value? And then what, you know, would then be the law? Because he distinguishes between these things. He says that basically Marx's political economy is about using abstraction and deduction alongside empirical experiments uh, and empirical, um, you know, ex um, conscious examination of the system. But then you have processes of abstract and duck reasoning where you kind of abstract the ideal average of capitalism as if it had no tendencies that were outside capitalism. So you can kind of figure out what the pure logic of it is. And so capital is kind of doing that. And Grossman is also trying to try and trying to copy that method and using capital. Let's see. He says, thus, it was entirely valid for Marx to substitute the power of abstraction for the missing constant reference points. So falling into line with Galileo's principle, measure whatever is measurable and make the non-measurable measurable. For instance, to ascertain the impact of changes in productivity on the formation of value and surplus value, Marx is forced to introduce the assumption that the value of money is constant. This assumption is, therefore, the methodological postulate that equips Marx with marks with an exact measure for ascertaining variations in the value of industrial capital during its circuit. This is an assumption underlying all three volumes of capital. Yes, and that's, I think, important to keep in mind is that capital is not a description of capitalist society as it actually exists. It's an abstraction that's developed through a kind of dialectical method that Marx uses in order to determine what the laws of motion are of capitalist society. And Marx comes up with, you know, capitalism is defined by the law of value. And I think the law of value is basically the tendency for prices to gravitate around socially necessary labor time. So that, you know, value decreases as you become more productive. And so prices go down. And that has, and so another aspect of it is competition between firms causes producers to lower their prices and to, invest in more labor, you know, less labor intensive technology. And so, and this basically causes the organic composition of capital to rise, as Marx would call it, which is essentially the ratio of, what is it, variable capital, which is uh, labor power, and then constant capital, which is just the rest of the means of production. I think it's a C to V though, yeah. Yeah, C to V, constant to variable capital. And so, the idea is that as capitalism, because capitalism has capitalism has this tendency to where producers and firms are competing to um, lower their prices, and so therefore competing to economize on labor time for machinery, overall, capitalists will invest in machinery at the expense of labor. And because labor is a source of surplus value, the actual ability for capitalists to get an actual return on their investments is diminished. And so this is the root cause of basically all um, economic crisis. I, um, that sounded about right, because I know there's a lot of different interpretations of the rate of profit to fall. But essentially, the idea is that this is internal to capitalism and its own social relations as they've been abstracted by Marx. I'd say that sounds reasonable. Um, what I wanted to say is I want to double back a little bit and talk about method in the introduction to this book, which we uh, weren't uh, paid to read. By the way, this is uh, this is an edition, our first edition of Not One Step Back, where we read a, uh, a donor's text. So an anonymous donor thought this was pretty important because Marx left this, this theory uh, as a lacuna in volume three. And uh, I don't know. So I wanted to shout out to that anonymous donor comrade. As you were saying, though, um, and with the law of value uh, and the methodology underlying it, what I think is really interesting about Grossman is that in his defense of Marx's abstract model of capitalism, as you rightly said, this it, it's not supposed to be a description. I think a lot of readers of Marx would think of Grossman as fetishizing what Marx is doing an imminent critique of, like what Marx is just adopting for the purposes of critique. Because what he defends is essentially bourgeois political economy, like from 
now to all the way back then. Like even neoclassical economics to a degree has this sense that you need a really rigorous logical derivation of these tendencies in order for them to be respectable theories. Right. And and Lexi, actually, when Donald said that the volumes of capital aren't necessarily intended as a perfect representation of capitalism as it is, I had to think myself that there's an extent to which the critique of political economy, Marx was essentially trolling the classical economists and saying, I can beat you at your own game here in in some senses. And I don't I don't think that means that the rate of profit doesn't fall or something like that, but that some of the higher degree of abstraction that goes on there has to do also with invading the field of economics, not as necessarily an economist or just an economist. Maybe. I mean, there is a sort of Stalinist streak in the text in the sense that he phrases. Oh, like, I meant Marx, Carl. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Shit. All right. I was no uh, thinking about Grossman. Mr. Well, that that's reasonable, Lexi. We did read Grossman. <laughs> well, I think um, it's just because Grossman is basing so much of himself of Marx, where I think one way I've had it explained to me is that Marx's method is basically from the concrete, he develops abstractions through empirical observation. And then the idea is you develop these abstractions from the concrete. And then you return to the concrete and apply them to you know, concrete situations, and then we further develop those abstractions. And so it's kind of a, a that's, that's the way capital is written, is as a basically, if you look at the way the chapters are arranged, you have descriptions of what actually happens in capitalism, and then kind of abstractions developed from that to create an ideal average of capitalism. And then he keeps on building on it to eventually he kind of comes to a model of capitalism, actually. And so it's, it's true that he's critiquing political economy, but at the same time, it's kind of inevitable that he makes a new political economy in the process. And Grossman, look, I, I haven't like Thank zoomed you. in on all of this, and I don't know if Marx's particular contributions are really somebody else's. But yeah, like Grossman notes how Marx's is different than Ricardo's. Well, I think the other big difference is that I don't know if Marx is actually engaged in just some kind of purely academic exercise to sort of demonstrate some create some kind of parody of like classical political economy i think that what he does is he historicizes it in a way maybe that others hadn't previously and that he understands like that capitalism as a transit as a transitional human social arrangement and that political economy is sort of capitalism's understanding of itself to a certain extent and thus it's also sort of only applicable to this particular social formation and the way that things will be accounted for beyond it uh, probably won't use the, these categories. I do think that involves some ownership in the way that Grossman, as he's critiquing Otto Bauer, the Austro-Marxist, Grossman, as he's critiquing Bauer, um, takes some ownership of the models that Bauer has. Yeah, that's one thing reading this that I actually found to be kind of ambiguous because he, he's constantly referring to like, you know, Bauer's reproduction scheme and so on and so forth. And I wasn't entirely clear what he was critiquing and what he was agreeing with always. Yeah, I also found that ambiguous. I think he picks Otto Bauer because, first of all, Luxembourg sidesteps a lot of bourgeois economists and makes a model that, like, answers them. And then Otto Bauer outflanks Rosa Luxembourg's model as, as far as Grossman is concerned. And that's why he's targeting Bauer. And Grossman is very critical of Luxembourg because she locates a tendency towards breakdown and crisis as outside of capitalism. If, you know, in her accumulation of capital, she says that Marx basically gets reproduction wrong and says that ultimately the problem with capitalism is that the capitalists can't realize their surplus value and because of underconsumption. So there's always going to be a difficulty of realizing their surplus value. So the capitalists are always going to have to search for non-capitalist markets to basically imperialize and and exploit in order to keep the system reproducing but uh 
Bukharin of and uh, you know other Marxist economists critiqued her on the basis that she was locating the tendency towards crisis as being outside of capitalism rather than within its own internal logic. And so, because Marx is basically saying, look, if you just take capitalism and remove all pre-capitalist aspects, which still, I think, have a, an existence and an influence on capitalism today to a degree even. But let's say you just have an abstract pure capitalism that's untainted by, you know, distortions and rents. And basically, even if you have that, you'll have these tendencies inherent to that system, I think is basically the argument. And so... Another thing I wanted to make clear was that for Grossman, there is a, a difference between crisis and breakdown. And I think we should just kind of, you know, outline totally what his, uh, take on both these things are and how they relate. Just to, uh, but before we do that, I want to double back on Luxembourg. The point, the first thing he attacks Luxembourg for is not caring about personal consumption of the capitalists as a causal factor in the breakdown. Like that's the first thing he zooms in on her for and says uh, accumulation only seems to make sense to her if the consumption of the capitalist commodities is left to non-capitalist countries. Uh, yeah, and that's why, I mean, she's wrong in the first place because the whole problem of realizing the surplus value is basically fixed by the credit system. So she basically ignores the entirety of volume three, which is what annoys me about that book. But anyway... Anyway, breakdown, crisis. So, so yeah, crisis is caused by the falling rate of profit which is, you know, caused by the rising organic composition of capitalism, the displacement of labor by machines, overproduction, a lack of ability to make profits, which, you know, leads to an increase in financial speculation, which eventually creates speculative bubbles that collapse. And that's what we saw in 2008, basically. And you just have an endemic inability for the system to make profits at certain points that leads to basically, you know, a crash. And then there has to be a large destruction of values for accumulation to basically set itself up again on new grounds. So there's kind of a cyclical creative destruction crisis in capitalism. One thing that's interesting is how he basically, he literally accuses Luxembourg of scholasticism. And that is ironic. Yeah, because the whole department one, department two thing comes from volume two of Capital. And what Grossman basically argues is that she doesn't seem to understand that Marx was basically creating an abstract example as opposed to a real description of the economy. Um, and so the last part of that section where he goes off on this, uh, he goes, this only shows how completely Luxembourg has misunderstood the significance of Marx's methodological procedure. For who could ensure that accumulation takes place proportionately in the two departments? No such regulator exists under capitalism or can exist. It follows that proportional accumulation is a purely ideal case, a fiction that could, that could actually prevail only accidentally. But as a rule, the actual process of accumulation is quite unequal in the various branches. He, he seems to argue that she kind of half understood what Marx was doing and ended up trying to prove that it was empirically valid and ended up like fudging some categories, essentially. Which, again, brings me back to this logical derivation thing in which he quotes... Hayek, right? <laughs> he quotes Hayek mm -hmm. about methodology. Um, yeah, I as, thought that was. I actually thought about that a while today, because I think there is a difference, though. I think Hayek starts from certain axiomatic presumptions about human nature and incentives and stuff, and then Marx, goes to the concrete from there. Or I think Marx actually starts from an actual empirical investigation, okay. if done right. correctly. I think that okay. there are some Marxists who actually do basically have the a priori Hayekian method, whereas I think proper scientific Marxism starts first from the concrete and then goes to the abstract. Yeah, Grossman kind of represents maybe a fetishization of, of this kind of methodology, which I don't want to say we shouldn't do. I actually was really pleased to see that Galileo quote about making the unmeasurable measurable because I've been reading some value form stuff and I read Paul Maddock Jr. on crisis ten tendencies, falling rate of profit and trying to calculate it. And there's a lot of skepticism about whether we can calculate any of this stuff. But if you, if you spend any time around like STEM people or people trying to make money with you know analytics, they don't have time for that. <laughs> but anyway, 
just to get back to the text itself and under, making sure we all understand it is you have the tendency of crisis, but you also have the tendency of breakdown, which he says is a different thing altogether and the tendency of the crisis. And the way he sees it is you have continual crisis in a cyclical way, but you also have an overall tendency towards the breakdown of the social reproduction of the system itself. Because every time there's a crisis, the recovery becomes weaker, the general reserve army of labor becomes larger, the amount of surplus value that's even available in the first place for capitalists becomes smaller overall. And so as a cyclical crisis has happened, you have a, a general increasing tendency in the complete breakdown of the system. And that's basically um, his thesis, is that basically the system has a limited lifespan and that it has not only an inherent tendency to crisis, but also an inherent tendency to break down. Because, yeah, crisis, as far as he's concerned, is not itself the long-term threat. He has a quote here. Marx's, uh, uh, we know that in Marx's conception, crises are simply a healing process of the system, a form in which equilibrium is again reestablished, even if, it, even if forcibly and with huge losses. So yeah. that's his overall opinion of crisis itself. Yeah, it's almost like a creative destruction type, you know, right. a vision of crisis. And he sees breakdown as a longer term process that gets worse and worse of every crisis. And one thing that's interesting is you know, he makes a point about how there's an ever increasing large reserve army of labor, which is basically the kind of the argument of Mike Davis and Planet of Slums and also... And you know, this idea, but there's a there's a secular tendency for surplus populations to increase, and yeah. uh, and I thought that was interesting is that he kind of talks about that and that basically these these tendencies for basically the, the the economic system to get worse and worse means that overall the proletariat just becomes more and more miserated to the point where it has to make political action. And he doesn't say that political action isn't necessary and that the breakdown will just happen on its own, basically. But he does basically say that at some point, you know, the proletariat won't physically be able to exist if it doesn't actually do something. And, and capitalists so that's will where have no gets. reason to invest. Capitalists will yeah. have no reason to invest because they can't get anything for themselves. It would all be caught up in the reproduction circuits for their enterprise, and so they don't make any profit. So who gives a fuck? Like, and so then, it, but it comes to the question, though, what do people think of this idea that there is implicit in Marx, but not explained by Marx, an inherent tendency towards breakdown? And because I feel like Marx never really says this directly, but Kotsky kind of develops a theory of breakdown, but it's not as, um, I guess, fleshed out as this theory of breakdown. But I mean, I don't know. Do people think that this idea has any merit whatsoever? I am... Pretty much convinced that what he says about Marx, which when I first read it, I was like very skeptical of what he first says about Marx, that Marx basically believed in a theory of breakdown, even if he didn't describe it. That was a hard sell to me because he kind of offers an argument that kind of sounds like this. If all these things are true, then... If if the law of rate of profit to fall, then breakdown. And Marx thought law of rate of profit to fall, therefore Marx thought breakdown. It's never explicitly spelled out that the rate of profit to fall will cause the breakdown. And that's the missing premise that would have that would have to be for there for this argument to go through. But when you read Marx and you think about that passage in Capital where the expropriators are expropriated. And if you look at his body of works as a whole, I think that's pretty much what he thinks. He doesn't think capitalism can last forever. And he well, is, he does he have that quote, you know. Way. He does kind of have he does have that quote where he says the development of the forces of production inevitably comes into conflict with the relations of production, and so therefore a new mode of production has to be developed. And so yeah, the fettering thesis, which yeah. Which Grossman goes into in, I think, the most sympathetic way that I could stomach that language of productive forces being the thing built. Because what I guess I, a lot of interpreters forget is that productive forces is also supposed to be like human power of creativity. 
like labor oh, power. Yeah, definitely. Like and productive uh, forces isn't just like techniques to labor, methods of laboring, organization of labor processes. Yeah, I think it's, it's a lot it's, broader term than people think. It's not just tech. I think it's, it's really easy to read it as tech. Like, and that's what like a lot of reconstructions of historical materialism get attacked for technological determinism. But it's, it's a little more than that. It's about like what the powers of creativity the society has, and the way that I consider there being fetters in capitalist society is one. There is of course like measurable social goods that aren't going to be pursued because they're not profitable. But also B. There's just sort of like a qualitative rot um, that, like I don't know communists would put technology towards in a better sense in that sense that primos feel like capitalism is so embedded in technology there's no point in trying to fight um there's no point in trying to embrace technology like it's that same kind of deep telos how strong of a claim do we really feel like this breakdown thesis is though because it's not like grossman is denying and we were talking earlier about some some quotes lexi it's not like anyone is denying that proletarian subjectivity is involved in a breakdown really going all the way and that to me just takes the sort of deterministic because you know the controversial claim is oh capitalism is going to necessarily fall right and at the same time all of these people who make this claim also concede that it, it, it will depend on a conscious social act, not just a capitalism goes away on its own type thing. Yeah, there's a situation where it doesn't make sense anymore to keep reproducing life in this way because it's not reproducing life. Like, it's not doing it. Like, it, there's a breakdown. That, uh, that, that doesn't seem like that crazy. Well, how about this? Maybe the, the breakdown doesn't necessarily even lead to um, communism, but it might just lead to like a crisis, like a breakdown of the forces of production to the point where, you know, the, the you know, basically we have neo-feudalism or some weird like, I don't know, there's some kind of regression to a lower form of production, basically. Right. Because yeah. Capitalism that, fails. That's a good non-linear way of thinking about the history yeah. there. Yeah, like maybe it is barbarism and something even less progressive than capitalism basically developed because maybe there's a breakdown in the productive forces. And so the total of like just like the fact that we go from basically having a general surplus beyond what we need for society to not having enough. So society then has to develop on in more of a uh, basically a disruptive way with nature. And so basically, you know, and there's also the fact that maybe the limit of capitalism isn't contained in itself, which is kind of what the argument is here, that capitalism itself contains the own objective tendency by its own logic towards breaking down over time. But maybe the, the, the contradiction is not so much that as capitalism has a life cycle because at a certain point, the general capitalism becomes impossible for humanity to create a uh, relation to ecology with that sane at all and can allow for the reproduction of the human species. So maybe the ecological crisis is actually where capitalism meets its limit because, you know, basically the valorization process makes it impossible to adequately deal with the ecological problem. And so essentially you have to use planning in order to save human civilization or otherwise you'll have the extinction of the species. So maybe it's, you know, that's the general contradiction. I don't know. I'm open to these theories though. I am open to the idea that capitalism has like a definitive life cycle. I think the inevitability of communism is basically Marx having a sense of faith that proletarians and the proletariat will act rationally when the breakdown comes because the breakdown is inevitable that this isn't just a business cycle theory and while taking great pains to differentiate breakdown and uh business cycle crisis you know i'm not sure where business cycle and crisis are in terms of 
if they're synonymous for Grossman, but I, they're synonymous for a lot of people. They're, they're not. They're not. I think it's. I mean, I think yeah. They the for um Grossman, what crisis is is basically just a general business cycle, and breakdown is a more general permanent crisis of capitalism with its ability to reproduce just gradually, like withering away to a point where social conflicts become so intensified and the general amount of wealth in society just keeps on creating these huge divisions, essentially. Um, and he says one of the countervailing tendencies is imperialism as well. So I imagine you probably would say that as you have this breakdown of capitalism, you also have the rise of monopoly capitalism and imperialist competition. So he says the law of accumulation is the law of is the collapse of capitalism, a collapse delayed by counteracting tendencies until these tendencies have spent themselves or become inadequate in the face of the growth of capital accumulation. But capitalism does not collapse automatically. The factor of human action, though conditioned, is powerful. The death crisis of capitalism does not mean that the system commits suicide, but that the class struggle assumes forms that must lead to overthrow of the system. Um, there is, as Lenin said, no absolutely hopeless situation for capitalism. It depends on the workers as to how long capitalism will be able to vegetate. See, that's almost, uh, I have a problem with that interpretation almost, because he's basically saying that what it means is that there's new forms that are adequate, that need to be made that are adequate for, you know, this basically breaking down capitalism. And so that's where you get basically the idea that capitalism since you know, 1914 or 1919 has been decadent or whatever. And so therefore, these are the correct political like principles or whatever. I think that there is a danger there. And that kind of shows, that's kind of in the historical context of this text and the fact that it was used to basically endorse a bunch of stupid ultra-left policies in the common turn that were very mechanically and, you know, put into place that tried to force a world revolution because, you know, there was this claim being made that there was a breakdown and new forms were necessary. Isn't it certainly possible, though, that we actually have reached a point where any real reformist challenge will simply trigger a crisis of the system and will basically be untenable within capitalism? I think they just become more and more untenable. Well, that's what I'm saying, though. So we've reached a point where, you know, even like the like, for instance, like MM, let's look at MMT, right? If you start to think for a minute about what you would actually, the requirements to make MMT work, you realize you're basically talking about, you know, mass scale nationalizations, if not a complete global reordering of the production system. You know what I mean? Or even yeah. like, or, or any number of reforms like this, like anything that any blow for the proletariat would basically eat into profits and if the if the, if the profit rate really is thin because we haven't had like a massive enough period of capital devaluation it seems like any set of reforms are bound to trigger a crisis um, and that's this... kind of the argument the autonomists make actually is that the class struggle itself basically can trigger a crisis by eating away at the capitalist profits i mean i think there's truth to that <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting idea, but it also is a, you know, it's kind of, um, it doesn't, there's also, it also is basically the same as neoclassical profit squeeze crisis theory, that basically crisis happens when there isn't enough profits, and so basically there has to be, like, a diminishing of wages in order to basically restore the equilibrium of the system. Because basically what crisis is, is like a period of where, like, social equilibrium becomes disrupted. And so Grossman is saying, yeah, you have periodic like disruptions of social equilibrium that are followed by periods of growth. But each time this happens, as you have more crises, the periods of growth become you know less fruitful, and the general um, social immiseration created by the crisis just keeps on growing and growing. Well, profits can go up because they, they increase the mass the mass of profit. But yeah, that ends up creating a crisis of accumulation. Although the mechanism for that wasn't entirely clear to me on the reading of this. Well, I think the idea is that there's a difference between the mass of value and the mass of profits. So you can have like all this speculation and profit created that way, but it's not backed by actual value produced by surplus labor. And so it's basically just um, fictitious capital. Fictitious capital, yeah. 
And so you have an increasing level of fictitious capital because one of the counter tendencies to the breakdown and to the falling rate of profit, I think, is investment in finance. Yeah, there's also the point about the rate of profit versus the mass of profit, where the rate of profit yeah, right. in a Marxist way is important for the theory of crisis. The, um, the, the mass over, of profit is tendential thing is really rooted right in the mass of profit yeah the mass of profit is basically shrinking i mean the mass of surplus value i think sorry the mass of surplus is shrinking more and more and so that makes it harder for the capitalists to make profitable investments which is what leads to the tendency in the rate and profit to fall oh by the way uh that quote that i read was actually from the palmatic piece but it, it, I was reading it off Marxist.org, so it looked exactly the same, and I realized I was scrolling on the so wrong wait, thing. So uh, wait, just flag that. Uh, which yeah. yeah, it's um, if if anyone you know, this is actually a good thing to read along with this text. It's called the Permanent Crisis: Henrik Grossman's Interpretation of Marxist Theory of Capitalist Accumulation by Paul Maddock. and yeah. I guess it's on Libcom and Marxist.org. So it's it's a pretty good um, just summary of all of this stuff yeah I've, i have too many windows open my bad yeah but it's um if you want to read a, a good summary of this article i would recommend reading the palmatic piece palmatic <laughs> is pretty good on economics to be honest i often find him hard to disagree with on economic issues it's just his politics are such utter crap both Paul palmatics are very good on economics like the yeah. palmatic jr's book uh, i think i think it's business as usual Hope I'm not yeah, wrong. I think McNair wrote a review of that, and his, his title of it was Good Economics, Crap Politics, or something like that. <laughs> well, and um, McNair compared it to Michael Roberts and Robert Renner's books on the crisis and found Maddox Jr.'s basically to be the best and most readable and basically, you know, recommended this, like, here, here's a quick breakdown of capitalist crisis. Here's what happened. Like, if this is a little Marxist book that you can hand to someone. Like, yeah, I think uh, where Grossman and Michael Roberts are similar, are actually, they do actually do have kind of a similar theory to Grossman. Very that, much so. M Michael yeah. Roberts just defended cycles. Yeah, you have the cycles of crisis, but then you have a general tendency over time for breakdown of the capitalist system. Difficulty, the capitalist system, it's just general difficulty in reproducing itself because of the shrinking mass of surplus value and rising reserve army of labor and rising levels of finance capital and so it's just if you really think about it there's just so much of human existence right now that's kind of held up by finance capital it doesn't actually probably have any real value to back it yeah i think when you and think about surplus proletarians you know and you think of like it, it might be a little like bit objectifying to think of them as like you know as their labor power not being, you know, developed as a force of production. But it, there is something humane in what Grossman means by it and what I think Marx means by it and maybe not what Stalin means by it. This idea was already basically there at the beginning of the common turn. You know, basically the it's idea... It's a Marxian idea. Yeah, it's in Trotskyism as well, that um, capitalism is in decay. It's in a, it's in a period of decay. And so... I think basically what happened was in the common turn, the smarter people basically realized that actually no, like the world revolution is going to be a more um, protracted process where, you know, there's going to be setbacks and victories and it's not going to happen like in this short period of time very quickly. And so basically we have to, the common turn has to develop a strategy of winning hegemony over the working class versus the social democratic institutions and to do this it has to you know basically form alliances with you know other working class organizations and struggle but still propagandize on its own program and then in the third period there's a move totally away from this back the kind of the attitude that revolution is imminent and there needs to be a, a, a direct clash of capitalism immediately and any kind of alliance for the social dems with reforms or any kind of um any kind of basically reformist activity is just wasting the energy of the proletariat that it could be Fucking used fascism man 
Well, it's it's weird because there's this kind of vitalistic way people think about it. You know, if you listen to a, a left comps talker, they act like the proletariat has this like vitality, and by voting, it like loses its vitality and becomes like demasculated. But through direct action, it like gains vitality and becomes more combative. And so, voting is bad, but direct action is good. Basically, it's weird theory, but that's kind of like I don't know what I think about when I hear a lot of these arguments for like well, that that kind of brings us back to the autonomists actually because i feel like that that sort of prediction uh that we put forward before that or that they put forward that the class struggle itself sort of is a war of attrition against capitalism might be the best way to summarize that as sympathetically as possible i, I just when you look at their their actual praxis, it looks just kind of like insurrectionary anarchism in like the contemporary United States in a lot of ways, where the autonomous movements in Europe tended to focus on these occupations and things of things of that nature that that didn't really have reference to a a real mass basis and and so little was accomplished outside of the sort of left bubble. And I, I, I wonder, you know, I don't, kn I don't know that everyone who says that is going to go on some political adventure, but I, I think it clearly can lead you in that direction, in, in a way, if if you don't understand social basis, at least. I mean, exactly. The thing is, this theory of breakdown is often used as an argument for adventurist political activities, like basically saying, well, capitalism is a system of breakdown, things are getting really bad, and we need to act now to bring people into motion because they're not being put into motion. So we need to basically just go hard against the capitalists and sacrifice and kind of do violent minority actions. And so that was kind of the theory of the offensive that a lot of the left wing of the common turn was advocating for in the earlier period of the common turn. But basically, with the third period, because of this idea that capitalism is in a breakdown period, that now there has to be a return to these ultra-left tactics of like a direct um, assault on capital, basically. Yes, yeah, someone who isn't me once smashed a Bank of America's windows, and then after not being an insurrectionary anarchist anymore, became a Marxist and opened an account there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's funny how, but I think you know the autonomist like their theory is actually kind of would go against what Grossman is saying because they'd see it as too deterministic. Oh no, no, no. the autonomists are totally voluntary. The autonomists are saying more so that um, the the autonomists are more so saying that the working class through its struggle is like like subjectively creates the crisis almost that basically by assaulting capital it forces capitalist crisis to happen. Whereas, basically, Grossman is saying that there's tendencies that run behind the backs of everyone that are completely beyond anyone's control that are going to create a crisis no matter what, which I think is actually more true. I think if you look at the economic situation in Italy at the time of autonomia, at least, like you can have a lot of sympathy for why they might think that. And in fact, I feel this way about all those left-com tendencies. I have sympathy for why they think that way during that time, at least like during, you know, third period or during the first world war, or even indeed during the second world war, even though there's some real shit politics associated with that. Um, yeah, well, but, but today basically took up the totally opposite, like rightist position of like popular frontism as an overcorrection for third periodism. Now, I was, I was also thinking about the left comms as well, like the oh, people yeah. that totally opt out. Anyway, but um, I guess I, I have less sympathy for people that still are. It's like the transitional program. You know what I mean? That it's this whole set of ideas that only makes sense if you know the if the breakdown is here. Yeah, like, exactly. The breakdown it's, is not here. That's what um, like, bothers me a lot of, about about a lot of left communist stuff is just the fact that it's based on the assumption that the breakdown has been here since 1914, basically. 
and that we just need to uh, wait for the right moment when eventually the working class will be forced to uprise. And that it's it was this inevitable tendency for the, the breakdown of capitalism to create working class struggle, which on its own economically will create Soviets through mass strikes and these Soviets will become the new state. And so there's this ultra deterministic theory of revolution where the party is essentially just a sort of militant minority that pushes the masses forward and doesn't actually become a mass party that rules with actual democratic legitimacy, but really just becomes this kind of invisible dictatorship working in the Soviets to steer them in the right direction. And I think that we need to kind of get rid of this idea that one's theoretical take on the crisis necessitates a certain like set of political views. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, Stalinists and left comms were jiving on this shit. And Trotskyists, too. I mean, the whole like transitional yeah. program is it's all based on this idea that capitalism is basically decadent, it's decaying. And so any struggle for reform is going to be impossible to achieve because capital can't win it. So therefore, if we rally people under struggles for reform that are not go- that are inherently against capitalism, we'll call those transitional de- demands. And so we'll rally people under those reforms, and eventually, in the process of that, they'll become radicalized. And no matter how like economistic or just you know reformist in general, like say. $15 minimum wage is a, is a transitional demand and we're going, it's impossible. And according to this theory, it's actually impossible to get under capitalism. We're not going to tell the workers that we're just going to fight for it until eventually capitalism goes into such a crisis that the workers have to start fighting for communism instead. And it's, 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 yeah, it's leads to a lot of bad politics. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because it reproduces an argument that Marx polemicizes against in capital that yeah. raising the minimum wage or or setting you know labor hours fixed labor hours would destroy the economy well the way they get around that is they say that capitalism was ascendant in the time period of marx oh, so it's still possible to win reforms and i think that uh like where the left where the trotskyists come to this conclusion almost that reforms are inherently revolutionary but the left comps take from it is that any struggle for reform is basically wasting the proletariat's energy that could be spent on overthrowing the system itself. And they have no real strategy, though, of how to actually do that. It's just reformism is bad no matter yeah, what. Yeah, it's just uh, imperative. I would, so, I would I'd probably adopt like a median position and basically say that reforms are likely to trigger a crisis, particularly in current condition, under current conditions. But so you, what you really have to do is basically just like prepare the proletariat for that, essentially. And if the proletariat isn't like basically a prepared to like deliberately tank capitalism in order to accomplish their ends. Right. And basically not ready for anything. Yeah, there's just not a way of tricking the workers into communism. And it's, it's not even, it's just part of me wonders do people come to these political conclusions and then come up with the idea of the breakdown? capitalism after the fact or are they really like making this objective economic analysis of capitalism's breakdown and then from there developing like the correct political strategy i don't know it's it's well, probably the first i mean that's uh how a lot of people think honestly people have a set of intuitions and try to explain to themselves why they have these intuitions and so there's something i wouldn't take as fundamentally dishonest about that being a motivation for Marx, for instance, right? Or for a lot of people that are looking at what they see as some kind of long-term breakdown in capitalism. But um, yeah, clearly I think you can adopt a lot of what Grossman is saying without going to the harder forms of determinism because Grossman, at least, you know, I, I haven't read, I haven't read anything of his beyond this, but Grossman seems to adopt the right amount of determination I, and you know like i don't know how to say this but marx certainly believed in a high level of economic determination but not complete determinism or like there are certain essential features of societies that will be fundamentally shaped by the mode of production or whatever like i i, I that should be relatively uncontroversial if you are a quote marxist like i think 
I think that that has to be squared with all of his comments about revolutionary agency. And I, I don't think it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to like think about what the actual nuts and bolts would be. But I think in principle, it's a kind of metaphysical debate to think of that as being too hard because you could tease out like people do this with free will and shit. You know, how can we have free will? There's all this, all these atoms. And I mean, it's not even really a deterministic system, but people still feel that way about it. Like, I don't know. I, th I think there's a big psych well, out this, tendency this there. One of the big arguments in Marxism and it's almost like there's been an overcorrection against determinant economic determinism and Marxism towards a sort of Hegelian idealism. And I think that there is this idea that the second international failed because they were too deterministic in their belief in the collapse of capitalism. So politically pacified them. And so instead we need to basically look at, um, you know, like Lukash is like, does we need to look at the power of, you know, the mind, the vanguard and the ability of, you know, ideas to kind of, have their own like self-evolution through society and there's a lot of hegelian marxists kind of try to you know bring hegel back into marx to restore human subjectivity but they end up actually just like creating idealism in a lot of cases and so i think it's just you're right that it's almost kind of a silly debate to have because obviously we are controlled by conditions that are beyond our control but at the same time Marx isn't saying that these conditions can't be changed. He's just saying that to have these conditions changed, they have to be the aggregate outcome of human actors collectively acting in a certain way. And so, uh, yeah, I, as an individual, can't change the mode of production, but as humans act as collectives in aggregate, yes, they can change the actual social relations that govern them. I honestly think that I kind of want to go back and read Capital again, <laughs> all three volumes, because it's, I just, you know, certain, it's just put me in the mood to read that kind of um, really hardcore political economy. Yeah, I want to, I want to read the rest of this really and like parse the argument more carefully. Yeah. Because there's there's a couple things I didn't get. I didn't I didn't exactly understand what he was saying about the, the relationship between the rate and the mass profit. Uh, I didn't exactly under, I didn't think I exactly was able to parse um, the myth, the what breakdown totally is and how it compares how it differs simply from the crisis induced by tendential fall in the rate of profit. Um, and I also was a little unclear in a few areas where he was talking about um, people's models and where he was talking about marks um and so yeah I, i'd have to part I'd like the center the center section of of part two here i'd have to i really want to go back and parse a little more closely um there's a whole bunch of like mathematical proofs and shit like that tables and yeah it's definitely like i said hardcore serious big brain political economy yeah <laughs> he's trying to complete volume three yeah, you have, to very, you have to have a very high Q to understand Heinrich Rose. <laughs> yeah, this is like this is like Rick and Morty level, brand. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, his economic determinism. I mean, to be honest, I was initially very skeptical of this, just because people who recommended to me have generally had really wingnut politics that they use their weird theories of crisis to justify. But I actually found that his argument is actually pretty compelling. And I think that it's at the end, though, we shouldn't just base it off of the idea that, oh, it's what Marx really meant. It was implicit in Marx, and so therefore it's correct. I think it has to be correct on its own merits, basically. Of, of course it does, but it's, you know, it's a point well taken. Um, if you read value form stuff, at least if you read the uh, Heinrich's uh, uh, introduction to Capital, which I, th I really think is worth reading and is some of the best, like, plain English like attempts to talk about capital that I've ever read. However, uh, but by the time he's done with Marxist value theory, which I think he's reading it different than Marx intends it. Um, and then you look at what parts of crisis still hold up. Like not much holds up if, if you get rid of this whole like tendency of the rate of profit to fall. And it might be true that Marx later abandoned this 
and I'm not a Marxian philologist. I don't have access to the mega archive, you know, like maybe Marx abandons this theory at some point. But Grossman's contribution points to, hey, you know, this might be systematizable anyway. Um, and people that do empirical studies on this for whatever, you know, <laughs> Grossman and Hayek don't seem to think that those are worth a damn, but whatever, like whatever work people want to do with this, I think is maybe more important than exactly what Marx means. It does also seem to be pretty much in line with what Marx means. And I think that there's also empirical truth to it too. If we just look at, you know, the general, how capitalism from its birth has been marked by crisis. And there is this huge problem of basically automation and surplus populations that's making the capitalist class very anxious. And there is this feeling of just overabundance, but still, you know, having this being fettered by the capitalist relations of production. And so there is almost this, this feeling that capitalism has exhausted its progressive limits. There actually is a decline in technology itself. And it's more so just consumer electronics that are actually, you know, the main like um, point of the technological development and other forms of technological development are stagnating. Yeah, we covered it. We covered a plausible theory of decline uh, with Amir of Cold Dark Stars on the last episode. Just yeah. Check out. Which is, uh, yeah, that's another um, argument that kind of makes me more open-minded to the theory of decline. So I think I, I'm not just, I'm not completely convinced by this text alone, but in combination with other empirical trends in our society that show a tendency towards decline, I'm more willing to take these arguments seriously. Yeah, you take this, you take Planet of Slums and Misery and Debt and that, you know, uh, uh, the stuff that Amir was talking about, um, swirl it all together, and man, you, do, you do have a kind man, of theory of decadence. Fuck that. That's syncretic. Fuck empirical reasoning. Aristotelian logic <laughs> five ever. Well, I... Grossman, <laughs> Grossman doesn't appear to disagree unless I'm reading him in a fetishistic way, and he it's not him that has the fetish, but me. It's all good. We don't judge here on Swampside. That's right. You got a fetish? Don't worry. It's not false consciousness. It's not value form theory. That's not, the it's very different from value form theory. It's not just looking at how the value relation is fetishized and kind of obsessing over the social form of value and its impersonal character. It's really looking at the macro economics of capitalism. Just to jump back, though, to uh, what was what initially colored everyone's impressions of the text i have to say i i felt the same way because in the past i've only really encountered final breakdown type thought as a kind of necessary element in the left-wing kind of fantasy of self-justification you know like the that breakdown is true because it has to be for communism or for the left to win or something like that and and then they go and try to figure out why there's a final breakdown and it doesn't actually seem to me like that is what this text does and and that's a pleasant surprise yeah it does point to why marx was important so important and politically he says that this is politically important when he talks about uh wilhelm liebknecht writing to angles you know what was really the difference between marx and lasalle really you know it's it you know it's in volume three it's not it, it volume one around production you know what he, grossman was saying you know this is like the bible of the working class you know that whole trope like that's compatible with a kind of ricardian uh, at, at least attitude in politics, if not, you know, in political economy totally. Like, you can be an egalitarian distributionalist in regards to surplus product and, you know, like vo Volume 1, and Volume 3 is where you're really going to be running into trouble. That's it for this week. 
If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, uh, you can like us on Facebook, uh, leave us a good review on iTunes, um, or you could uh, send us some money via PayPal to swampsidechats at gmail.com, or you could sign up for our Patreon. Also, uh, we're on Stitcher now, so, and we're also on Google Play. We are on both Stitcher and Google Play, and so if you if you prefer to use those platforms, uh, give uh, give that a look and make it uh, make it a little more convenient for you. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>